0: Hello and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about the seven chapters in their life's travel diaries. From their earliest childhood travel memory and the first place they fell in love with to their hidden gem and what's at the top of their travel bucket list. We'll be uncovering their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, I'm joined by the much-loved actor and comedian Sanjeev Bhaskar. Following a late arrival into comedy, Sanjeev was catapulted to stardom in the comedy series Goodness Gracious Me, and later The Kumars at number 42, both bringing the British-Asian experience to the masses and to international acclaim. This success, which has led to decades of movie and TV roles, has taken Sanjeev all over the world. India, of course, is a big feature today. Sanjeev has filmed documentaries and written books about the country where some of his family still live. From Delhi and Rajasthan to Shimla and Darjeeling, Sanjeev paints such a wonderful picture of such a diverse and exciting country. And he transports us to the American city he first fell in love with, his European all-time favorite, and we chat about the new season of his hit ITV show, Unforgotten, which is back for its fourth season. In fact, there's so much to chat about that this is a long-haul feature-length episode. So let's get started. Here's Sanjeev. Sandy Faskar, welcome to the Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for asking me. What a pleasure and an honour.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure entirely. And on this gloomy Winter's Day, I am just so looking forward to being transported out of these four walls of my home, which I've seen far <laughs> too much of recently, and taking a journey through the seven chapters of your life's travel diaries so far, starting at the very beginning of your mm. life. That is chapter one, which is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be?
1: It would have to be India. And it was um, only because we didn't take holidays by my parents. It's, it's an immigrant thing, actually. You never move to another country as an e- economic migrant in order to have tea breaks and holidays. Uh, mm. You move to work. And my father was very much uh, of that mind. So, you know, the trips to India... Although they were, I suppose, in one sense, holidays, they were really there for them to see their family. Mm-hmm. Um, but those are the—that's uh, the earliest one that I remember. I was seven, and I have a fairly good memory. I've got a fairly good long-term memory. So my first ever memory is two and a half. Mm, wow! And um, and I remember things, you know, incidents, kind of, an anecdotes clearly from two and a half, three years old onwards. So at seven, I remember it all really very well. You know, the the feeling of getting on a plane at Heathrow, it was a jumbo jet.
0: Was that exciting?
1: Incredibly excited. I, I still have that sense memory of being, a, you know, at a sort of 30-degree angle, you know, once you've taken off and feeling like I was in a dream. And, uh, you know, we, we went in economy. It's not like we went posh. But the whole experience of airports and then airplanes and then, You know, you get in this, you know, you leave a place that you know, which for me was London. And you get in this plane with all these other people that you don't know. And you're mainly sitting for 10 hours. And uh, in those days, the you know, in-flight movies was a screen they pulled down at the front. Yeah. uh, That you had to watch. Smoking at the back. (laughs) Smoking at the back. Yeah. Obviously, I didn't do too much of that at seven. (laughs) Um, And then you land. And it's still the thing that gets me. You land somewhere. Completely different. And that's extraordinary mm. to me. You know, mm. you come out of the plane and into an airport. an airports, you know, broadly look the same, but then suddenly you come out of that and you're into a world, immersed into a world that you don't know. And you you don't know as well. And that's fantastical to me. And so at seven, I remember that really clearly. Getting out of the aircraft, going through customs coming out to this massive humanity on the other side
0: where in India were you
1: that was in Delhi so we la- we would land in Delhi and mm. my father's mum so my grandmother on my father's side lived in Delhi um, and shared a really small place small flat with my dad's sister and her kids so that would be our first port of call and we'd be there for maybe a night or two and then we would get on a on a Bus on a coach that would take us to Karnal, which is in the state of Haryana, which is about um, it's about probably about three hours on the coach um, out to my mum's side of the family, and that's where we mainly stayed. It's it's memorable for lots of different reasons. Actually, I mean, firstly because we were going for a wedding, and so you know the extended family were there. So suddenly Mm there is these you know thousands of people that you are related to, Um, and I don't think we we didn't travel very far because this was in September. So I'd gone in September of of that year. And we'd gone for a month, I think. That was the plan. And then the Bangladesh war started. And so okay. we were stuck there. And we were not, we were in, you know, Delhi is, is sort of northwest India. And so it's closer to the border of Pakistan. And when Bangladesh is on the east And so when war broke out, uh, it broke out on both sides. And so I've got that bizarre experience of having lived through a war experience in that there were, you know, the the air raid sirens would go off, there'd be blackouts. Mm. Uh, You'd hear sort of, you know, fleets of bombers going overhead. Wow. We were told, you know, that, you know, when the air raid sirens went off, if there was a bomb attack that we had to get under a table. And then I remember one of my cousins saying, actually, the corners of the house are the safest places um, because they're the strongest. So, you know, we had experienced all of that. And that went on for three months. So I remember we came back to London on Christmas Day.
0: My goodness.
1: I think the war ended probably, I don't know, two weeks before. Uh, but the flight back was on Christmas Day.
0: So did you feel a sense of relief then leaving India from that first trip that you remember? Must have been very frightening as a young boy.
1: It was. um, I have to to be honest. It was all exciting.
0: Oh really? Yeah, because I think good. Good, it didn't traumatise you.
1: No, because I think at seven, I mean, you're you know, you're just old enough to know what the repercussions could be, but you live in the moment, Mm -hmm. and and I think I was lucky as well that you know, my mum's side of the family were incredibly funny and humorous and um you know compassionate people so you know they were very mindful of not transferring any further stress to the children
0: mm-hmm. so they
1: kept it interesting for us and um kept it light i suppose mm-hmm. and all new and it's also i was in a country that was new so you know the food was different and the way people spoke was different and you know social rules were different and and so i you know i just came into something that was Once again, different, but in a way that was new to me, you know, in in a way, India and wartime were both just as new to me.
0: And taking the the kind of wartime element out of it, then having grown up in London, I mean, I actually have never been to India. But from what I've heard from so many people is that when you land there, it is this immediate assault on the senses, Mm. sights, smells, sounds. It's just a cacophony of excitement.
1: I experience that every time I go to India. Um, even now, you know, and yeah. I think that it's what it's India's one of those places where I've never, you know, people have one of two reactions, you know, they tend to either say I love it, or I couldn't stand it, you know, mm-hmm. Costa del Sol mm-hmm. from now on. And <laughs> yeah. I've never heard anybody who's gone to India for the first time and come back and you kind of say, how was India? And they go, it's all right. Yeah, I mean, I've never, I've never heard that reaction. Yeah. and I think it's because, as I did a documentary series where I, where I went round India for several months, and I remember writing a book after that um, about it, and and I remember saying in that, thinking about it, and saying that India is not convenient. You know, you can't because it is so overwhelming, massive humanity, smells, colours, sounds, you know, extremes, poverty, wealth, and there's no place you can turn away from it. You know, the, I remember thinking, actually, even in in somewhere like London, if there's an area you don't like, you can kind of skirt around it, mm-hmm. you know. And in India, you kind of couldn't because if you looked away from something that was overwhelming, you'd just see something else that was overwhelming.
0: And mm-hmm. in a way,
1: it it plugs you into the human condition in a way that I've never experienced anywhere else. Mm. Um, and you know, I had to. I remember as a seven year old one of the things that really struck me leaving the airport was seeing you know children my age begging and that was something that really threw me and and in order to try to deal with it emotionally i think i had to look at how the adults around me were dealing with it mm-hmm. and 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 then as i got older and i you know went back and you know you experienced seeing the same sort of things it was that not that they were not compassionate about it it was that they accepted that this was also a facet of life and yeah. so you know and so life birth death everything are just facets of existence mm. and and that, i think that's the way i kind of managed to deal with it then and still do in a way
0: and your parents left their homes behind during the partition of india which must have been deeply distressing mm. for them so how do they how do they relate to India now, and and travelling to India themselves? Yeah,
1: it's really interesting, isn't it? That you know, most of the people who were displaced by partition, I don't, you know, it's no coincidence that most of the people who were displaced by partition were the ones who then made their way to the west. And I think that you know, for them, leaving you know uh, ancestral lands, which they may have had a connection with for hundreds, if not you know, thousand years. To move to another bit of India that they didn't know, um, I think was a bigger trauma than leaving India to come to Britain or Canada or America, because mm-hmm. um, they'd already been mm-hmm. displaced. And so I think that that trauma for that generation—I mean, I, you know—that generation is remarkable in that, you know, there were—it's you know, the, it's the biggest migration of people in history. You know, fifteen to seventeen million people were displaced by partition. Yeah and they were given weeks to pack up and go and in fact i know that um my uncle and my grandfather both left after the partition date simply because they could not believe that their home and the town that they lived in would change
0: i mean and the wh- town that they lived in was
1: that they were both from both sides of my my parents uh, were from a place called gudronwala which is uh, just outside Lahore, which is now in mm-hmm. Pakistan, so they made the trek um, eastwards, as l- many Muslim families did westwards, and uh, yeah, they just didn't believe that. They kind of went, "Oh, this, this will calm down after a while, surely." It can't, you know, it can't mm-hmm. sustain like this. So it was uh, um, that trauma. I think for them was bigger than the trauma moving to Britain.
0: And is it something that they have made peace with now when they return to visit extended family in India itself? Yes, I think
1: so. I mean, I think I got in retrospect, I think I got a very, you know, diverse view of India from them because I'd certainly got a pre and post partition view of their experiences. And, Mm -hmm. you know, pre-partition, they you know, obviously much younger and they were children, and it was there's a degree of innocence and perhaps rose-tintedness to it and post partition my father was was a refugee uh in delhi um and uh, my mum had family uh, on the india side i'm slightly younger so it was slightly different for her but yeah mm-hmm. i think they made peace with it fairly quickly actually i mean it's there's this thing about you know the, the whole thing about living in the moment Is that you deal with whatever you have to deal with, you know, that's in front of you. Um, Mm. You're not dealing with kind of existential stuff. You're just dealing with the immediate here and now. And I think that that's probably what um, pushed is not a word. I mean, evolved them into a state of kind of like calm and satisfaction about it.
0: And that's a great approach to life generally as well.
1: Yeah, I think it's what I do, and I think I must have got it from them actually. You know, it's it's, that's great. it's, you know, people can, you know, you have to kind of know your past to know why you are where you are and, and the direction you're going in. But, you know, so many people live either, you know, in the past or a fear of the future that their present kind of becomes the casualty.
0: Mm, very true. So moving on to chapter two, that is the first place that you fell in love with. Where would that be?
1: Well, this is a tricky one. I mean, for most of these answers, you know, you're not going to get one answer. I, you're going to (laughs) get
0: that's five at least (laughs) two.
1: So, as a kind of immediate, uh, you know, gut response, New York. Uh As soon as I kind of arrived in New York, I just loved it, and I still do. It's one of my favorite cities. Driving from in from um, JFK into Manhattan there's a point where you turn a corner and you see that skyline for the first time and yeah. it is the closest thing to a man-made mountain range that you know one will ever <sighs> yeah. see and yeah. it's so extraordinary and it's that weird thing of you know being so familiar from television and from movies that i remember um, you know first landing in, in new york at jfk and stepping outside of the terminal and there was a cop there uh, who was you know, he was incredibly overweight and he had a coffee in one hand and he had a donut in the other. And it was like, <laughs> he'd come out of central casting and, you know, and he said, uh, well, you, well, you want to get a car into New York? It's yeah. Yeah. Um, into Manhattan. Okay. You know, better not take the FDR because, uh, you know, it gets, uh, gets blocked up at this time. And I just thought I'm in a movie. This is just, <laughs> this is extraordinary. And I suddenly yeah. kind of realized, I think with New York, you know with you know how long the streets are and the boulevards are and and how tall the buildings are the inherent drama of the city you know it you know it, there's obviously not many old old buildings like you'd find in in european capitals but um the scale of it and i suddenly thought oh okay now i i think i get why there have been so many writers and songwriters and stuff from from this place it's inherently dramatic so i think new york was the first certainly the first city that I fell in love with. Mm. And as a country, Italy. I think, you know, ah. and I'm sure we'll come back to Italy at some point. But yeah, Italy was just, I mean, every time I've gone, it's the only place I think I've been to where you, you know, every kind of hundred yards, you either see something of historical importance or aesthetic beauty or somewhere to eat.
0: Oh, exactly. On a loop. Yes. Where was the first place that you went to in Italy?
1: Uh, First place I went to, and I I set the bar very high, was uh, with my missus, with Mira. We went to Amalfi. Oh,
0: gorgeous. And
1: that Amalfi coast is just breathtaking. Just breathtaking.
0: Another dramatic set almost, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I remember kind of opening the, the, the window to our hotel every morning and turning around to Mira and saying, it's still out there. (laughs) it was kind of unfeasibly beautiful so you're from amalfi and then you know up the coast to positano and naples and pompeii and it was just an extraordinary trip and we and we've gone back to italy i think maybe four or five times since
0: lovely flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting The Travel Diaries. Well, one thing that I thought was quite curious that I didn't know about you was that you went to university and studied marketing. So did the taste for acting come later in life or was it more that the opportunity or the ambition came later?
1: Um, No, I think I wanted to act since I was about
0: three. Oh oh very young.
1: Very young. Um and um and I remember that some friend of the family came round and I was like, oh, maybe four, maybe five, something like that. And he said, Well young man, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, Actor and my dad said, It's pronounced doctor and um <laughs> which my dad then denied, but my mum was there as a witness. But um yeah, from about four, five, really, really early on, I was not just acting I was obsessed with films and really and so certainly by the age of six I remember trying to reading books I just didn't understand about filmmaking and the kind of equipment they used and how they did scenes and films and so anything about filmmaking I was slightly obsessed with and still am and it took me to 34 ish (laughs) <laughs> to actually get around to doing it
0: that's incredible
1: and that was because it was it was it, w- it wasn't seen as feasible I mean there was um you know my, my parents thought it was like you know it the same as a kid saying I want to be an astronaut you want to be you know the, the three things I remember little kids used to say mm-hmm. you know when I was at sort of junior school what do you want to be when you grow up it was kind of like fireman astronaut and uh pop star those are the yeah. three that kind of, yeah. and so you know, a kid of you know that age saying I want to be an actor, you just lump in the same category as astronaut. Yeah, well, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it just didn't seem feasible to them. And so, and I remember at school, I didn't do, I didn't do um, GCSE drama. i of a fit of peak actually. I mean, now when I look back on it, it was um, uh, I thought I was easily the best person at drama <laughs> in the class, mm-hmm. and they did the mm-hmm. school prizes and they gave it to some third rate person who let's face it we've never heard of since and um <laughs> and I think you know and I kind of went I was so upset at not even being in the frame of not being acknowledged yeah. that I said right tell with it I'm not going to do GC- GCSE drama so I didn't do any productions at school oh, didn't do any of that that's stuff. so sad it's only when I went to university and uh, to do my marketing degree that I they had a drama club that would meet twice a week and I went and joined that. And then those are the first productions I ever did. And I remember thinking then, God, if I'm not better than the people who are doing it in their spare time, then I really shouldn't be thinking about this. Maybe I'm just fooling myself. But I did, you know, I, I thought I was better than them.
0: So that low-level burning desire was there the whole time?
1: Never went. Never mm. went. I mean, I, I think my first access to it was to start writing my own material. And I was really lucky, a real life-changing moment for me was meeting Nitin Sawney who's now a, you know award-winning record producer composer for film mm-hmm. and he was um, studying there as well and we kind of connected as friends and and uh, we decided that we said oh, why don't we just put on something together It'd be a mixture of music and comedy we will be really unpredictable because no one is going to expect that from the two British Asian lads. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I wrote material for that. And seven years later after that, that um, we were still doing that in little theatres with Oval House Theatre in, in London, South London, we played there. And a producer from the BBC came to see it, knocked on the door Mm -hmm. afterwards and said, we're thinking of doing a sketch show. This is the kind of material we're looking for. Are you interested? And so, yeah, life changing.
0: Rest was history.
1: Yeah, ongoing, hopefully.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, is history. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, without sounding too cheesy, I just think that's such a lovely story of it's never too late to pursue what you really love.
1: No, and also, thank you. Yeah, I think it's also, it's never too late to pursue a passion. You know, whether that passion becomes an occupation is is a different matter. And kind of there's a number of things that need to fall into place. For that to happen, you know, right place, Mm. right time, uh, Mm a huge degree of good fortune. But your passion for it and pursuing the passion is something that you can do at any age, absolutely any age. And I think in a way, something I tell my kids, which is that, you know, I had no idea that my passion for film at five or six years old would lead me to being involved in it. But it never stopped me from not being passionate about it. You know, the, the, the end game wasn't a job. Mm. There was no end game. I just loved it. And mm. so, you know, I've always had more in common with someone who is passionate about whatever it is that they love than I do with a fellow actor who's whinging hmm. about what they yeah. do. Um, but the importance of having a passion or, you know, discovering a passion I think is is something you're not really taught at school. You know, people discover it at school. You know, they, they love English or they love reading, or but there's so many kind of interesting things, travel being one of them. You know, you kind yeah. of uh, you know a passion for travel is something that it. I mean, it's it's the best education you can possibly get anyway. Um, but it's experiencing it. My uncle, my dad's brother, who lived here uh, most of his life, and I remember saying to him. You know, when he retired, I said, well, you can travel now. And he said, what's the point? I said, well, you know, see new things, experience new things. He said, you yeah, know, I can see it all on the telly. I said, well, mm-hmm. "What about the food? He said, well, I could order it in. And I thought, I, I don't really know who you are. Yeah. Um You miss out on, on so much. You miss out on all that nuance
0: Well, that leads me very neatly onto chapter three, which is the place where you learnt the most about yourself. Where in your travels have you had the most meaningful self discovery?
1: Well, at this point, we've returned to India. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: It is the place that I've learnt most about myself because I think that as a kid being born in London, despite the fact that I spoke and sounded more English than anybody. Around me, Um, I was still an outsider. It was the way I looked and my name, and you know, Mm -hmm. and I was regarded as not in the club. And suddenly, when I went to India, not just at seven, but you know, subsequently, was suddenly I was in a place where everybody looked like me, and Mm -hmm. and yet I didn't entirely fit in there. You know, I was, Mm -hmm. you know, the the, I could speak the language, uh, I could read the language, I could you know, communicate fairly well, but I still wasn't from there. Yeah. And they kind of knew that. And so that sense of then trying to work out where I belonged, I think all of that and I think also I unlike a number of people, a number of my peers at that time, the fact that I didn't belong in either, I ended up seeing as a positive. Mm. And it I suddenly realized that I was in a position to be able to to cherry pick the best of my kind of British upbringing and my Indian heritage.
0: Obviously, you have traveled so extensively around it. You mentioned your fantastic BBC documentary series that you made, which I actually, it's still on iPlayer. I watched an episode of it last night and oh, I loved it. it. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, as someone who has spent so much time there, I'm always curious, as someone who is keen to travel there myself, mm. what would be your... Your hidden gem in 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 India or, and your favourite city. What are kind of like a few of the things that you would mark out as the places you feel most passionately about?
1: Oh well, it it um, it differs depending on the question in a way. Because if you're going to India for the first time, I think that the first best bet is Rajasthan. I think Rajasthan has got the forts, Jaipur, uh, Udaipur. Jodhpur, um the Lake Palace in Udaipur. Oh yeah, um, I've seen
0: photos of it. it. looks so beautiful. Yeah, it's
1: it's it, it's where um, it's the it's the scale of it. Um, you know, you've got you know a lot of the cities feel you can sense the history because a lot of them are uh, you can you can see a sort of medieval past. These huge forts that kind of dominate the skyline and the town and the city and then the city before it. And it's the scale of it. I mean, I remember going to various cities in Rajasthan and thinking, this is something like like out of Lord of the Rings. I mean, it's just the (laughs) scale of it is enormous. And that sense of India and history, I think you get from Rajasthan. But also, you know, it's a country of variety. So, you know, going up to the Himalayas, to the hill stations, Shimla, was one that i've been to a few times uh darjeeling uh, where you can on a clear day i think you can see four of the five highest peaks in the world and the tea gardens and and i think if you if you drive up i think you can only drive or get a train up to darjeeling from the base you go through every season you know as you go yeah. up as you're going up higher mm-hmm. that's all extraordinary and then the south you've got kerala and the beaches and goa and the cosmopolitanness of uh you know, of the cities of Mumbai. And I mean, in the center of it, there are jungles. You know, I went, there was one dock Mm -hmm. when I did, when we went to a tiger reserve and, you know, going through the jungles of that just felt like a completely different experience to anything else around India. And also, you know, the other thing with India is that, you know, if you go in the South, any knowledge of Hindi doesn't really help you. So I remember thinking this or discovering this at the time, when I was making that dock, which was that, you know, there are more English speakers in India than the entire population of the United States.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, you can get by with English. English mm-hmm. is the commercial language. So you can get around the country in English. But the variety within the country in terms of the food and, you know, languages around you and all that changes enormously. Um in terms of hidden gem, the one place that was off the beaten track that I didn't really know about that we filmed at was a place called Alora, mm-hmm. which is um, a couple of hours flying time north of Mumbai. And they have caves there. Uh, caves. They have kind of, I suppose they are caves. They've been, they, they're caves that have been hewn out of the side of a rock, mountain, cliff. Um, right. But some of these are so huge. I mean, we're talking two, three stories high. Uh, that they took wow. the side of a mountain and basically started chiseling down and chiseling in to make not only the facade of, you know, a, a temple or whatever, but rooms and stairs within it. It's all hewn from solid rock. And that was an extraordinary thing. It's something I didn't really know about, but we filmed there.
0: Did I film it
1: for the yeah? Filmed it for that. And um, that was amazing.
0: Hmm. So, chapter four is your all time favorite destination. So hard to pick for everyone, but what would stand out to you?
1: Well, I, I've already mentioned Italy. And I think that mm-hmm. is my go to place, actually, for the reasons I mentioned. You know, on every 100 yard loop, there's something historical, something aesthetically beautiful, or somewhere to eat. Amalfi was where I started. Amalfi and then. Napoli and then um, Vesuvius, which was, and Pompeii, which is amazing in itself. But then, you know, when I went to Rome, I just thought, this is the best walking city I've ever been to. And Mm -hmm. uh, although I kind of, you know, I've come to love Paris as well, I think it's a beautiful city. I think Rome for me was on a different level. Um, At Venice, again, it's something. It's out of a movie set. It's, uh, it's Mm, amazing and extraordinary. Sicily, you know, there's a living volcano. I mean, it's kind of, you can climb up it. Um, and yeah. uh, Sardinia I went to. So, there's you know, there's big chunks of Italy that I haven't been to. But I've yet to be disappointed.
0: The thing with Italy is that almost you could just have a lifetime of travels there and it would satisfy every desire.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could just go there and eat, <laughs> Yeah, which I do, obviously. Um, uh, it's, the food's amazing.
0: <laughs> What's your go-to? Oh, it's just, I mean...
1: You know you're in italy it's it's actually it's parmigiana. parmigiana is my is is my go-to dish in Italy.
0: oh, it's making me hungry just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so chapter five is your hidden gem, a place that you love that maybe my listeners wouldn't have known too much about
1: Shimla um in india in the in the foothills of the Himalayas. that's a special place for me that my dad, after partition and being a refugee in Delhi, He then went up to Shimla and got a job in the police office as a clerk. And Mm -hmm. that was the last job he had before he came to London. And so whenever I've gone, I went to Shimla as a kid and I've been there to film. Uh, And also there's a little theatre there, which which actually Michael Palin went to um, when he did his Mm -hmm. Himalayas program. I remember talking to Michael about it, actually, and uh, um, where he was introduced as Michael Palin. So it's something that I still call him um, but it's it was it was basically it was the the uh British summer capital, and so it's built on the side of a hill, and what dominates the the skyline is an old church, an old kind of cream colored church uh, which sits at the top, and the road in front of it is called the mall and so my dad spent, you know, a few years there in his kind of like late teens and early 20s. And so it has an emotional connection for me. But it's, I remember saying it's like a a kind of, you know, a home counties town got together with an alpine town and had a baby. Oh, that um, sounds
0: so wonderful in a way. It really does.
1: And it's because it's up in the, in the foothills, you know, Foothills makes it sound lower than it <laughs> is. You know, within an hour, you can you can have vistas of the Himalayas. And the air is
0: amazing. thinner and it's cooler.
1: Yeah, it's it's really unlike... It, you can suddenly understand why the, the Brits all kind of went up to Shimla for the summer, because Delhi was stifling. Yeah, that, that for me... It, Sounds it's little, quite
0: romantic.
1: I think it is. I think it is romantic. You know, there's lots of monkeys jumping around and steal your food. As I said, it's not that hidden, but... I still think it's a bit of a gem.
0: Well, speaking of romance, am I right in thinking that you fell in love with your wife, Vera Sael, the actress, uh, on a plane?
1: Well, it, we've tried to work out, you know, it's very difficult to work out when, you know, when you do fall in love.
0: Yeah, that official and, moment. Yeah, yeah, that it's moment. not normally like yeah, one, one moment, yeah.
1: yeah. There's no Cupid that you suddenly are pulling out an arrow from your backside and going, oh, thanks. <laughs> I'll make a note of the I'm love. <laughs> <clears throat> thank you. Um, it, so, yeah, it was, it was going to Australia. And, uh, um, you know, it's a very long flight. It
0: sure uh,
1: is. So it was 23 hours, and it was just me and her. And we were going there to do publicity stuff for uh, the Kumars, which is a series we both used to do, Kumar's number 42.
0: Oh, one of my all-time favorites.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Mine too. Um, and one uh, and the, the, the film of Mira's first book, Anita and Me, and so we went there to do publicity for a week or so. I mean, it's a fantastic trip. I mean, I loved, absolutely loved Australia, uh, loved Sydney, loved the directness of the Australians. And uh, we only went to Sydney and Melbourne, really, and then came back, which was another 23-hour flight. So, you know, Mira's always kind of quite rightly said that, you know, when you've got a flight that that's, that's that long, something's going to happen. Good or bad.
0: <laughs> were you sitting next to each other?
1: We were, yeah.
0: That's quite a bold move in itself. I mean, I assume you, that you were good friends, but I mean, that ex- extended period of time together is a long time for anyone.
1: Yeah, we, well, we'd, we, we'd worked together for about, so it was about seven or eight years that we'd worked together. But, you know, when we were working together, we kind of only saw each other at work. You yeah. know, you have this intense period of two or three months uh where you come into work and you do the stuff and then you go home. And so we didn't really see each other outside of that, um until you know, much later until the you know, certainly goodness gracious me had finished and but certainly, you know, at that point at that point we were also both single, which wasn't the case when we first met either. Neither of mm-hmm. us was single. And so yeah, it was it was mm-hmm. something I had to give. You, either we come back not getting on at all, or you get married. I think those are the rules. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's lovely i love it you should tell the airline that you flew with and maybe then you get free flights for the rest of your <laughs> life or something <laughs> it's it's really amazing i mean because time has passed since Sakuma's, it's easy to forget that you know clearly it was a big sensation in in australia it won an emmy you know which is out of the us an international emmy is that right
1: one one two
0: it won two Emmys, mm, exactly. Two so, Emmys. I mean, it really was. I mean, how how surreal was that for you?
1: Yeah, utterly surreal, utterly surreal. I mean, the thing is that you know my my sense memories and my sense associations of getting on a plane are still the same as when I was seven, which is that mm. you leave a place that you're familiar with, get in this little tube, and then a number of hours later, you you come into this world that you kind of go, "Wow, this is completely different," and. In addition to that, to then be recognized for something that you do is is a whole other cake. Yeah. You know, it's not even just a cherry on the cake. I remember in Australia, when we let, we landed, at sort of like early hours, five, six in the morning. And I think it was a baggage handler who just looked at me and he said, uh, you did doing some shows over here, mate? And I said, I'm <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, who, who are you talking to? And he said, you, you're you Blake from the Kumas, aren't you? And that mm-hmm. really blew my mind. It was kind of, that's not what I associate with getting off on a plane and arriving in a different country. And, um, you know, there's a bit of me that's used to it, but mostly it still takes me by surprise. I remember at well, uh, uh, Johannesburg, I remember a couple there approached me, um, that was still in the airport, who came up and said, you know, oh, we, we loved your show, The Kumars Is it ever coming back? You know, it's kind of, it's, it's a bizarre thing.
0: And is it ever thing. coming back?
1: Well, you know, obviously, me and Mira, you know, we're kind of ready it's to do it. quite easy
0: for you to have a convo, isn't it? It is
1: relatively easy for us. And also, you know, the weird thing will be that, you know, Mira's character will not have aged. <laughs> She'll <laughs> still be looking 80. Uh, I'd love to do it again.
0: Oh Well, we'd be very, very excited were it to make a return. But in the meantime, we've got Unforgotten to be excited about – which is mm. back for its fourth season, such a huge success. But I have a lot of international listeners who might not be familiar with it and who might want to get stuck in from the beginning. So would you be able to tell us just a bit about the show as a whole?
1: Yes. If there's a format to the show, it is uh, about, so I suppose, cold case murders. So in in the very first series, uh, it's a body that's discovered in the Basement, the foundations of a house. And they managed to find out that this was a young man that was killed in the early to mid 70s, 1970s. So it meant that as they follow up uh, on the clues that, you know, the very sparse clues that this body, these bones have given you, they track down the people who are uh, of interest, who are now all elderly. And so they are people that have spent 50 years uh, are having a life of having kids, of achieving things in their lives and, uh, and you know, socially. And so that was the really interesting thing about it, was that we then followed you know these four or five people, and the story was as much about what happens to those people and their families when they get that knock on the door. From the uh, police, you yeah. kind of say, do you remember this person? Didn't you kind of, when you connected with them somehow? And and so each of the series has done that in that you, we meet the people who may be connected to the person who died many years ago. And we look at their lives. We look at, you know, because everybody has a secret. And, mm-hmm. you know, each uh, series kind of explores what the uncovering of that secret is. Means to each of those characters. So the the who done it in the end is one small part of what you get. I've always described it as four mini dramas mm-hmm. uh, sitting inside mm-hmm. a, a who done it. I play one of the coppers, so I'm one of the detectives. Uh, and I think that also the show has a lot of heart. I think that the interesting thing about because you don't think these things when you're making it, but um, the thing that's been commented on certainly from viewers here and and from different parts of the world the united states in particular and australia has been the relationship between the two main detectives which is you know a warm respectful friendship yeah and so there's a heart to the procedural part of the the drama but uh, you know each one of those mini dramas could be a season on its own so it's incredibly rich writing
0: so if you hadn't watched the previous seasons, you could come in with this new season and understand it all and really enjoy it.
1: Absolutely. I'd always suggest starting with series one, but yeah, you can you can jump in on any of those.
0: Fantastic. So let's pause there then for a second and move on to chapter six. That is your worst travel experience.
1: <laughs> well, my worst travel experience isn't associated with the place,
0: mm-hmm. but
1: it was the experience. Yep. Yeah. So it is Paris. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Paris, a city of love. La ville de Um, (laughs) l'amour. So it was the first place outside of school trips that I'd ever traveled to. And it was at the time, it was to meet um, a girlfriend and probably the first person I fell in love with. And she was working in Paris for a year, which was to me was really exciting. It was, wow, you know, not only do I get to see her, but I get to see Paris. Yeah. And um, so I worked, I did temp work to save up enough money uh, to go over on the train and the ferry, because um, that was the cheapest way of getting there. And I was going to be there for five days and then come back. And she was staying um, in some apartments. And yeah, obviously I was going to stay with her. And that was all, I was really excited. I hadn't Mm -hmm. seen her for a couple of months by then, the odd phone call and a couple of letters. And um, so five days, I was going to spend five days with her, you know, in the city of love. And on day two, she dumped me.
0: Oh, no.
1: So I was, but I was still stuck in Paris (laughs) for another three days. And... As i couldn't you know couldn't afford to um, buy another ticket or you know to just get the train back that i was booked on so i had 3 days of walking around the city of love i still went to the sites still went mm-hmm. to the, the eiffel tower and the champs-elysees and but just as a slightly kind of depressed bitter oh, and twisted okay. individual i remember kind of watching <laughs> all these couples just you know in my head going oh you look so happy now Mm-hmm. You just wait, and then wandering up to the you know Eiffel Tower and say "Dernier étage, civil si play. So it was it was <laughs> such a kind of um, painful association that I then refused to go back to Paris for years. Really, really. And I then odd. went back to do a film. I filmed in Paris, and that was the reason I was going back. And um arrived at the station, uh, Gare du Nord, and I was traveling with people and got in the taxi and i remember the first few first five minutes of driving away from the station i just felt this well of kind of sadness at what the younger me had had to go through and i just thought you poor kid you know that's a shame um and since then i've loved it
0: oh well i'm glad that you kind of had closure on that experience and that now you can see paris again with fresh eyes so we're on to the final chapter of your Life's Travel Diary, Sanjeev. And that is chapter seven, which is the destination that's at the top of your travel bucket list.
1: I mean, it's so difficult. I mean, the mm-hmm. world is such an extraordinary place. And, you know, in anybody's lifetime, you know, even if you're Michael Palin or you're Alan Wicker, um, going back even further, mm. you know, you, you get to experience such a small part of it. So there's so much to see. And now, you know, just to confuse things, they kind of go, hey, you can sign up to go into space. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but um, so in terms of places that I've not been to, that I think I would love to go to first, I think would be New Zealand. Mm. And I think it's mainly down to – well, it's down to two things. It's Flight of the Concords, who I think <laughs> yeah. are very funny and brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> And obviously, Lord of the Rings. I mean, I you know I can't think of a series of films that could be sold as a you know travel advert than Lord of the Rings. Exactly
0: the landscape.
1: Oh my goodness! I mean, the variety within the landscape as well. You know, from you know volcanic rock to ice-covered mountains to kind of beaches to forests. It just looked amazing, and so yeah i think new zealand for me as a film fan and somebody who likes kind of comedy then i just kind of go okay thank you flight of the concords brit and (laughs) jermaine and thank you peter jackson um new zealand
0: fantastic oh well thank you so much for your time sanjeev those were your travel diaries it's been such a pleasure to chat to you
1: it's been an honor holly thank you
0: That was a fantastic Sanjeev Bhaskar. I really hope you enjoyed hearing his travel diaries. Unforgotten airs on Monday nights on ITV at 9pm. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to hit subscribe on your podcast app so that you're updated with a new episode each week. And if you can't wait till next week or if you're new to the podcast, remember there's the first three seasons to catch up on from michael palin and rick stein to dev patel poppy Delevingne, and richard branson to find out who's joining me next week come and follow me on instagram i'm at holly Rubenstein. i would love to hear from you i love reading all of your messages and share your own travel diaries using the hashtag #TheTravelDiaries. diaries i'll be resharing your hidden gems your recommendations and all-time favorites on my instagram and here on the podcast later in the season thanks again for listening and i'll be back next week Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos visiting some places that have been on my bucket list and while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun my home will be hosting guests from all all over the world thanks to airbnb it's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like i do whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room It's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host.